At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Bet the Farm edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of a lovely late August week. We would normally around this time do a rosé edition, but we've done that a couple of times. So, and what goes better with rosé than fruit? <laughs> so <laughs> this is going to be the fruit edition. We are going to talk not only about bananas, but also and especially about strawberries. He's not even kidding. Folks. Oh, no. That's actually no. what we're talking about. <laughs> it's it really is, true. It is officially late August. Yes. It's late August, and we are we are having a fruit bowl. It's <laughs> actually, we, are, we are doing our own little slate money fruit salad here. It's going to be delicious. It's going to be full of... Antioxidants. Antioxidants. Vitamin C. Yeah. And and maybe squeeze some lemon on top so it doesn't go bad. I don't know. Well, you squeeze lemon on your, on your strawberries? I don't know about no no strawberries. What you want to do is uh, a little, a couple teaspoons of sh- granulated sugar. Yeah, that's if your strawberries suck. That's anyway. No, no, you do it as, as my as we'll my grandfather <laughs> always used to say. He's not doing it for the taste. He's doing it for the crunch. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about strawberries because actually, there's this just the world of big strawberry is kind of amazing. So we want to dive into that. Um, with Adam Shemansky. Hello. And Jordan Weissman. Hello. And a little walk on part from Carl in Los Angeles because and a little walk on part from Carl in Los Angeles because before we get to fruit, yeah. we are going to do this thing where we answer your questions. Yes. And Carl has written in and in fact phoned in with a question. Carl, what is your question? Or rather this is Carl's question. On voicemail. Hey there, Felix, Anna, and Jordan. This is Carl from Los Angeles. You guys are always singing the praises of index investing, but I wonder is it possible that we are all missing something with this move to index based passive investing? If everyone moves to passive index funds and just invests on schedule, won't this lead to inflated prices of the assets that make up the indices? All of the stocks, bonds, and commodities that are included in the major global indices will get inflated, causing a bubble in the mainstream. And the smaller or less mainstream assets, ones that for every reason are not included in the dominant indices, will become undervalued. Basically, if too much money is dumb and passive, can't that in and of itself produce a bubble? 
And aren't we handing over a lot of power and oversight to the firms that are compiling these indices? So perhaps you could talk about the risks of index investing in a future show. Many thanks and great show. I always enjoy it. So, so Carl, we did we did talk about the indexes and and the way that they are doing things like preventing companies from having dual classes of shares, um, but we haven't talked in a huge amount of detail about the potential downside of passive investing, mainly because we I don't think have had anyone on the show who believes that there's a downside to passive investing but until now you do. <laughs> I think. Has, has thrown some shade at, at ETFs, uh, yes. various ETFs before. So we're, I think we're going to get deeper into that. But as I, I think there are multiple ways to take this question. There's the sort of macro approach, right? There's like, how could the rise of passive investing uh, undermine markets and lead to communism or whatever? Like I think like Singer, Paul Singer may have suggested once. Um, or and and this is, I think, communism. a little bit what Carl was saying. Well, it's like, if there's too much passive investing, what would ha- like, you know, what are the potential effects? And, you know, too much of anything, that's what too much means is like, it's too much. But I think we are, I think everyone agrees that we're a long, long way from it's too much I don't right know now. if I agree with that. It's but, still, okay. We're, we're going to get to that. The, the, the micro way, the other way to approach this is just if a regular investor, like what's the downside of it? And I, I kind of want to take a stab at this. I'm curious. I want to hear your guys' take. But as someone who just has all my money essentially in a Betterment account, like that's that's where I am as an investor. Um, the thing that does worry me sometimes is market risk, right? Like the idea of index funds essentially is that you're just betting on the market. And market risk is, is this pretty simple idea that sometimes the whole market goes down at once together because these, you know, there's stocks a, go up and stocks go down. Exactly. That's what they do. Yeah. yeah. The whole, you know, the economy tanks and you're screwed. Um, and when you are just sort of, you know, the idea of diversifying is avoiding market risk. And with of an account no, like part of it well, not necessarily well, oh, it's sorry. limiting yes L- yeah I mean. it, it's your limit when i say diverse like when you go stocks and bonds because bonds mm-hmm. are supposed to limit your risk to when the whole stock market uh crashes so of course but if you're fairly young you're probably looking at like what an 80 20 diversification 70 30 70 30 stocks to bonds so you're still betting pretty heavily on that stock market and exposing yourself to it and that's sometimes i think like whenever i hear oh stocks are really expensive and returns are not going to be great and that's pretty much over long term and who knows maybe this is a bubble that's going to burst sometimes i, I sit there and think to myself eh, i'm kind of bet on one very large horse so yeah, <laughs> yeah and i think that's an interesting question right um you know stocks have always provided the best long term returns you know for for decades and decades um if you're investing for like a 30 plus year time horizon like no one has ever failed to outperform other asset classes you know by investing in stocks and for the entire history of capital markets people have said well is that going to continue to be the case in the future and of course no one can foresee the future the one thing we can foresee with certainty is that stocks will fall as an asset class you know by some reasonably large amount 20 30 percent at some point in the next 30 years. Um, and if you are the kind of person who wants to avoid your portfolio dropping by that amount of money, you shouldn't be mostly invested in stocks. This is why normally as you get older and as your time horizon towards retirement is shorter, you're going to be more heavily invested in bonds. But And this is what robo-advisors are quite good at, is changing your asset allocation according to your age and that kind of stuff. Um but, you know, the, the fact is that if you are in your 30s and you want a 0% chance of your portfolio falling by 30%, then no, you shouldn't be in stocks. Um, the, the 
big question is like, is this retirement funds? You know, yeah. is this money which you are not going to touch until you retire? In which case, you should be able to just sit there and ride it out and let the portfolio go down and then wait for it to come back up again. Like anyone who had all of their money in the stock market in 2007 and then suddenly saw it cut in half in 2008 and then just didn't do anything is perfectly happy right now. You know, you wait a little bit of time and it come, you know, what goes down goes up, what goes up up goes down and and you don't stress the movements. But People do stress the movements, and if you're uncomfortable with that kind of volatility, then, yeah, that's one problem. So if you're going to be passive, you have to be really passive. Yeah. You have to, yes, have to yeah. the hell out. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and I do think there are, are two issues here. Yeah, if we're going to talk about – I mean, I'm not going to give anyone investment advice, but you know whether it makes sense for an individual investor to invest in passive funds versus a mutual fund product, yeah, there's uh, – Everybody understands why people have been shifting into passive funds. If you've looked at the underperformance by so many active managers over the past decade, it's significant. And then if you look at the fees that have been charged and how that further eats into your returns, everybody understands this. And just just to give you an idea, like this year has been a very good year for active managers. Mm-hmm. Like lit- weirdly, in the large cap space, at least most active managers are outperforming the index, but people don't invest for eight months you know they invest for 30 years and if you look at like the 15 year performance of any active manager in the world none of them will have kept up with the index like the longer not true sorry 20 less than 20 percent and the chances of you being able to pick that one in the less than 20 percent who is going to be able to outperform over 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 15 years is basically zero no and I, i i again i'm my argument i'm going to be making here is less about whether you should be in a passive fund or not in a passive fund, it's more about the potential danger of so many people moving into passive funds. And I, because I, I agree, yes, if you have a lot of money and you can potentially find, you know, the more expensive investors that have stronger records, then that's a separate issue. But as an individual, again, there aren't a lot of great alternatives. But what I think is actually interesting, I know you poo pooed this a little bit at the beginning, but I am concerned about what this type of when passive investment represents this much of the market, what that means for the market and what potential dangers that could introduce to the market. Okay, so let's potential danger number one, which Mike in Los Angeles came up with. Carl, Carl in Los Angeles. So potential danger number one that Carl in Los Angeles came up with is if everyone is investing in, say, the S&P 500, which is the dominant index to invest in, um, then that's going to create a bubble in the 500 stocks in the S&P 500. And it's going to mean that all of the money goes to those 500 companies and not enough money goes to the rest of the stock market. And that is going to be like a capital allocation um, mismatch. And I, I agree, because the reality is when you're a passive if you're running a passive fund, you're not making money a lot on because the fees are very small. So you can only make money on scale, which means you tend to be investing in the largest, most liquid assets. So the reality is... Well, also by definition, I mean, nearly always you are tracking the S&P 500. Like, it's not just the job. S&P 500. Yeah, though. There mostly, are many different products here. Yeah, no, no, no. We, the there, are many, there are many, many different products and ETFs and passive investors, but the vast majority of them are S&P 500 products right, by, by, in- by, by number. And my counterexample here is just Tesla. 
Yeah. You know, like there's no in there's no indication that not being in the S and P five hundred has in any way harmed you know the Tesla share price. And Tesla is one counterexample. I'm sure people can come up with many others because one of the issues is when you have smaller companies that either aren't in these indices or just aren't like the um aren't going to be in as many of these passive products because they're smaller and less liquid, they're not going to have as much capital allocated there. And when when you have an issue, if you're running an index fund and you have $100 million of inflows and you're saying, okay, so what am I doing? I am just simply putting it in whatever other people have bought. So what is going to be the most expensive? I, it, you could argue that that's going to lead to the, the, the much vaunted buy high, sell low strategy that you are you are now not only tracking the market you are a very large part of the market and but you are not the marginal price setter i think no this is, you are no, you are and, and, that's not that's a, I, so this is where we fundamentally disagree you are absolutely right that etfs trade a lot um for various reasons because they make for extremely liquid hedging vehicles for starters if i want to do some kind of a relative value trade and say this is going to outperform the stock market or underperform the stock market then what i do is i one leg of that trade is going to be an etf um and people day trade etfs all the time and you know there's a bunch of crazy activity going on in etfs but what we're talking about here is passive investing not talking about relative value trades, we're not talking about day trading. And ETFs have a bunch of different uses. But as far as passivism investors are concerned, as we were just talking to Jordan about, as far as the, you know, robo advisors and Vanguard and people like that are concerned, they are really boring, set it and forget it, long term shareholders who don't trade. And they just sit there and they own the stocks for decades and they are not the marginal price is that, is that true? Because a lot I know a lot of them try to do things like tax harvesting, right? That, that's one of the products. Yeah, it's that, a, that's I, tiny. Okay, so I was going to say, because that does involve some selling when things fall and trying to reap yeah, the losses. A little bit of that. No, right now, if you're talking about passive investing in, U, in the U.S. markets, it is representing close to, I think people think in about a year, it would represent close to 50% of the activity. That is not a small amount. And no, said, I, that, no it, might, it might represent 50% of the I'm not holdings, about, but I'm not, not of the I'm trading. I'm not talking about market value. No, actually, activity. I could be wrong, but I saw this stat yesterday. No, you're wrong. Because 50% of the activity is just like high-frequency trading. You know? Well, high-frequency trading is also like not nearly as much of the market as people think it is and have not been doing very well lately. But No, no one's a, talking about that. No, what, but what, my point is that passive investing is now becoming a significant part of the market. And I think what you're doing is you're confusing two different things. One is passive investing, and the other one is ETFs. And ETFs are used for many, many, many purposes, of which passive investing is Indexes only one. Indexes are also used for many, many different right. purposes. And so when you're saying that ETFs are, account for a huge amount of trading, that's true. But that's not the fault of passive investing. No, but my point is, if you're talking about passive investing, you are talking about both index investing and ETFs. They yeah. are both examples of passive investing. Yes. They now represent a large portion of the market of money that is going into securities, not based on any analysis of the fundamentals of the companies it's investing on, but simply because either it's in a specific category or because essentially it's a moment momentum trade. Other go, people invested in it. I, I want to go back to a concept you guys both brought up, and I want you to explain it a little bit to more to me because I, I feel like I intuitively get it, but it could be teased out more. And I bet some of the listeners it would be helpful. Um, you mentioned the marginal price setter, right? And, and Felix, you're saying that essentially these ETFs aren't 
functioning and, or the, these the passive, ETF, the, or the, pa- the passive investors, investors are not pro- and, marginal price setters. And Anna's yeah. saying that they are. Can you just explain a little bit more about what a marginal price setter okay. is and like how that? So how we can at least think about that? Let's let's take a sort of stylized stock market. Yeah, where you have ninety percent of the market is passive investors who just bought the entire stock market and are sitting on it and just doing nothing and they're not trading. Okay. And then the st- the market still moves from day to day. And the reason the market moves from day to day is that the other 10% of the market is people who trade in and out of stocks and they might do it on a high frequency level, you know, multiple times per second, or they might do it um, a few times a day or a few times a week or whatever. But they're what they're doing is exactly what Anna is talking about. They're doing fundamental analysis. They're d- taking out the discounted cash flow models. They're doing momentum trades. They're doing relative value trades. They're doing whatever it is you, you know, that people do when they try to make money in the stock market. Mm-hmm. And those people are engaged in one of the most important parts of markets, which is known as price discovery. Yeah, and they're basically when a stock looks cheap. Those people will jump in and buy it until it's no longer cheap. And when it looks expensive, they'll jump in and sell it until it's no longer expensive. And what markets do is they move around all the time. But wherever the price is right now is like basically where the market thinks it should trade. And that price discovery mechanism is always performed by the active traders rather than the people who are just sitting there holding for decades like Warren Buffett. But again, when you have inflows coming into passive funds and they're all going into the same equities and increasing their value again that is inflating the prices that, that yeah so but that, okay so wait that's that's also a uh, that's also not a function of passive investing that is a function of equity inflows and anytime you have inflows into the equity market the equity market is likely to rise. That's true whether they're active flows or passive no, flows. No, when you have money going from active investors to passive, going from actively managed funds to passively managed funds, the money that's going to passively managed funds by definition is going into normally a smaller set, at this point, a smaller set of securities. I, I'm not sure I really that is buy true. that. It is true. And I'm, and <laughs> I, the reason I don't buy that is because, as we all know, most active managers are shadow indexes they more or less they more they benchmark the index they more or less follow the index some of the they will deviate from the index at the margins but when you aggregate them all pretty much by definition what you get is the index and so if you're rebalancing the investor base from active to passive the actual amount of money which is moving into basically the s&p 500 companies and out of everything else is surprisingly small. I I wonder. Going to so, disagree with that. But. So one of the concerns you brought up, Anna, is that a lot of these smaller companies aren't going to be getting funding. Like, right, like the, the money's not going to flow to some small firm that couldn't even make the Russell two thousand. Um, my question is: Is that really a bad thing, or does that just mean they're going to have to look for funding elsewhere? That they're going to no, it go could to- be a bad thing because it's again, it's potentially a misallocation of capital that has nothing to do with the fundamentals of the companies that people are investing in it simply has to do with again momentum or when you with a lot of etfs where it's like factors so it's basically just the categorization and i do think that could be a problem 
I think it could be a misallocation of capital. The point of markets is supposed to allocate. I mean, like, couldn't private equity then deal with that? Saying, okay, these companies are underfunded, uh, undervalued on the public markets. Let's buy them up. It's it's not even private equity. It's also venture capital, right? The place where people are raising large amounts of money these days is not the public markets, and it hasn't been the public markets for many years. It's been the private markets. Right, but we're talking about companies that are already public. So, but but look, I. I think your 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 point is valid there. And I actually think this brings up another point that I do think is potentially interesting, where I would argue that one of the things that could potentially help active managers moving forward is the fact that I think the movement into passive investing is creating misallocation of capital and potential dislocation of markets that could p- create opportunities for active investors. Right. And that's exactly it, that there will always be arbitrageurs. There will always be people saying, look at this, you know nascent bubble that is happening in the index stocks. I can do a relative value trade where I basically sell those using ETFs and buy everything else. And if you believe that passive investing is causing an imbalance, then what you do is you make that trade and you buy everything else and you sell this index. And with any, if you're right, then you make lots of money. And it's not just about relative value trades. It's just about like traditional trading in general. But what that does is what arbitrageurs have always done. Is Not it just arbitrageurs, that's a different... Is it moves prices back into balance. And markets are self-correcting in that way. And there's no reason to believe that this like move from active to passive has stopped markets from being self-correcting. The price discovery mechanism of markets does not need everyone to be doing their own independent research. It just it needs a impor- tiny minority to be doing it. But I do, again, I think it is when index investors represent a small segment of the market, then no one's going to criticize it. As it becomes bigger and bigger, and with the rates that we're seeing of inflows, it could be very significant in the next five years. I think that is concerning a number of people. And I would just like to point out that a lot of what I'm saying here, I'm somewhat cribbing from Howard Marx's most recent memo, which I'll give a shout out. I used to work at Oak Tree, so I'm a little biased, but I have a lot of respect for him. And he lays a lot of these ideas out very well. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day, and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Okay, let's talk about strawberries. Let's do it. <laughs> let's pick strawberries. So, strawberries. So let's talk about strawberries and specifically let's talk about one of the most awesome, like, geeky, wonderful New Yorker articles to appear in ages by Dana Goodyear. If you haven't read it, we will urge you all to go ahead and read how Driscoll's reinvented the strawberry in in the New Yorker. It's just 
a glorious um, article and it's full of wonderful facts, which I'm going to just randomly drop into this conversation because... The headline's a little misleading, though. Yes. Because, like, yeah. basically one of their points midway through is that Driscoll's more or less discovered a French hybrid of an American and uh, South American strawberry that first emerged in the 19th century, and then they popularized that throughout the country. So that's what we now think of as a strawberry. But So, anyway. yeah, and but the... Um, so Driscoll's is a really fascinating company. It's Kingberry. <laughs> and because it doesn't behave like bananas do. Now, we're going to talk about bananas later. But the main thing you need to know about bananas is that people grow bananas and then they sell bananas. And then the more bananas you grow, the more you can sell, the more money you can make. It's a commodity, yeah. Strawberries are not like that. Driscoll's is constantly creating and tweaking the genetics of strawberries. And in fact, it doesn't grow a huge number of its strawberries itself. It's more of a product lab than a, than a farmer. It thinks of itself as comparative, like compares itself to Apple. The idea is that, like, they design the There's strawberry. Fruit. <laughs> what? Yeah, right. Um, but no, they think they design the strawberry. Then they work with a they outsource manufacturing, or in this case, they send the the germaplasm, the the breed of strawberry, to the farmer, and then they sell it and market it around the world to or around the country to around the know, world. Around they're the world, they're yeah. in dozens of countries, yeah. and and they, you know. So Disney has Imagineers, famously, and Driscoll has Joymakers. These are the chemists who are doing the genetic engineering of the strawberries. They literally called themselves Joymakers. It's an amazing... So what I think... There, there are so many different things you can take away from this piece, right? And a part of it hinges on this battle between Driscoll's, which is, you know, it's corporate strawberry, right? They are, they're the big name, but they're actually not the ones who dominate the market. Most strawberries actually are essentially based on um, versions that are dreamed up at the U University of California, Davis. And that's what they talk about is sort of this academic lab that then distributes its strawberries to all these different farmers. So, I mean, I'll give you some numbers here yeah. just because I, I can't help from myself from dipping into this bowl of strawberries or this article <laughs> where <laughs> the, the, the u.s berry market is six billion dollars yeah. and of that driscoll's controls 60 percent of organic strawberries 46 percent of blackberries 14 percent of blueberries and just about every single raspberry yes I love every that. single if you've raspberry. eaten a raspberry it's almost certainly Either one you picked yourself or a Driscoll's raspberry. So, but here, here's the what's what is intriguing to me about this story is that there's it kind of gives this sweeping history of the strawberry innovation business, where you start off and it's sort it's actually is the wild west because there were no there used to be no such thing as plant patents. You you did you, you crossbred your plants, your apples, your strawberries, and you hoped to God someone didn't sell it. Or then you hoped to God no one stole it, right? Um, and so you had all these strawberry farmers in the US trying to come up with breeds that were more resistant to disease or tasted better or looked bigger and brighter and redder, whatever. Um, and you had like thousands of versions of them. Everyone was innovating, trying to come up with their own strawberries. And then eventually you got this, they they decided we we can't handle this anymore. This is this is 
too chaotic. People are stealing all of our strawberries, uh, you know. And so you ended up getting this lobbying campaign to create plant patents. Um, and you even had like uh, Thomas Edison writing in like how great this would be for innovation. And now so eventually plant, pat- plant patents became a thing. So that's a big thing Driscoll does. It patents its strawberries. And it's a big thing that University of California Davis does. And there's all these controversies over, um, you know, people trying to steal their patented product now. Um, and so now it's gone from sort of this now you have a world where a lot of the the competition is about IP and IP rights and fighting over Isn't everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so to me it shows that you actually can have a thriving innovative economy without these these patents that then just kind of throw a legal wrench into the works. And so I think that this is um th- th- this is actually a good story for those of us who would like the idea of abolishing patents in a lot of respects. <laughs> it's sort of my strawberries are a good example of why patents right. don't need to exist in my opinion. Because you can just get your strawberries from UC Davis. It's the idea. Part uh, of it, yeah. Uh, but and one of the themes of this article is the way that UC Davis has been, you know, well, it used to be at Berkeley and then it moved to Davis, you know, dra- cultivating strawberries and coming up with new strawberries. One of the fascinating things about strawberries is that they become obsolete really quickly, that there are diseases which happen and like basically if you ate a strawberry 10 years ago, you would never be able to find that strawberry on the shelves today. Exactly the same one that the Driscolls like and UC Davis and people like that are <laughs> constantly having to invent new strawberries to replace the old strawberries, which are becoming obsolete. I, this was something I also found interesting about this article. It was just normally when we're talking about plants and if you're talking about modifying their genetics, we use the term GMOs. And that's something that if you use the term GMOs, people get really upset. And really nervous well, about what the GMO is. I know it's a, different. A I know it's. Term. I know it's technical different. I, I'm not saying it's exactly the same. I, I completely. But I did find this interesting that this article is essentially about creating new breeds. You know, doing all the things that are very similar to what you would actually do with GMOs. But because you're not using the term, it doesn't scare people. Yes, and this is why GMO advocates. I mean, basically, including everyone on Slate staff, are just like GMOs are not a big deal because right. this is the shit people have been doing since, exactly. since Wendell. Yeah. This, yeah. yeah, I mean, to be clear, they are not. Yeah. Modifying the genes, They're they are, they are cross-breeding the, rather right. than actually going in and using CRISPR to alter. That's fair, but you could argue that like well, strawberry genes. Um, but yeah, I, along with everyone at Slate, you know, would agree that there's nothing inherently harmful about going in and using CRISPR to modify the strawberry gene if that's what you want to do. One of the things, in fact, that the big strawberry, you know, really struggles with and the number one reason why the strawberries you buy at your supermarket have been carefully bred is because they need a level of drought resistance you know the amount of rainfall that you get in strawberry growing areas can um vary wildly and if you just left up to nature you could never um produce the sheer quantities of strawberries that the american public is is demanding so i have a question yeah. All this technology is going to strawberries. Why do strawberries taste so bad? They don't like, I think I I think I see I actually like Driscoll strawberries. I think they're actually a lot sweeter often than the ones you get at the farmers market. I think I think locally grown farmers market strawberries from random heritage breeds that have not been carefully uh pre-selected and tested in a lab 
are often overrated. And that Driscoll's product, which I can get for two fifty nine for a giant clamshell over on Pacific, like is are, are a great deal. I don't know. I was going to say, <laughs> when I was a kid, we had like there were strawberry patches and you could go like it was a, it was a lovely summer activity. Oh, yeah. OK. OK, Michigan. Like, this Just is- saying. <laughs> um, and they were so delicious. And then now I try to eat a strawberry and it tastes like moist cardboard. I don't. I, I well, so one of the reasons, and we'll we'll get to this more in the banana segment, but but one of the main reasons <laughs> is that they need to be able to be shipped from one coast to the other. The strawberries are mostly grown in California, in the United States, and we here in New York don't have a lot of local strawberry farms, and so you are, and so Driscolls in particular is breeding strawberries for their hardiness more than for their and, taste. And, and, so I hear and you. then and then the other big thing, which is the really big thing, and this and, and is the answer to your question, is that they are also being bred to look pretty. Right. Yeah. And it's the, like and the, it's a little bit like tomatoes, is that the way it looks is more important than how it tastes. But th- there's also sort of been a, a counter, and this is sort of what the article talks about, but in produce in general, they're realizing that millennials like kind of chase novelty. And so there's been this movement towards, okay, let's try and experiment with wild-ish strawberries. We're going to crossbreed it with some ver- version that's from Alaska. And they're going to look more like the, you know, strawberries that Anna was finding in the bush. Um, and then like, and same thing with tomatoes, like you've had the whole heirloom tomato right. sort of revolution and now you get breeds like ugly tomatoes out of Florida. But here's the thing, right? Is the heirloom tomatoes yeah. are big. Yes. Wild strawberries are tiny. Yes, that's that is And if you wanted a clamshell full of wild strawberries can you imagine the picking how many strawberries you would need to fit into there they would be on top of each other it's it's like logistically you can imagine that driscoll's would just shudder at the thought i don't know you can do it they do with blueberries well this is what i'm saying the blueberries i get the blackberries i get the raspberries i get delicious (laughs) strawberries on the other hand although again i will say the best blueberries a bit like the best strawberries are really small and it's, it's very yeah. hard to find a little baby small blueberries outside Maine. I, I was about to ask if your stance on blueberries is that they may only be eaten from a roadside vendor <laughs> outside of like Kennebunkport. <laughs> no, my, my, my stance on blueberries is that there's only one way to eat blueberries, which is at Mabel's Crab Claw in Kennebunkport. Oh, God. Anyway. And and which um which is run by my my former colleague David Rhodes' cousin and the blueberry pie there is not just the best blueberry pie you've ever had it's the best pie you've ever had it's Strong Quite statement. Amazing. <laughs> You're starting to sound like this is like Twin Peaks or something. <laughs> like, some damn fine pie there. It's it's amazing pie. I you know what can I say? It's the best pie. Okay, we're we gonna talk about bananas now. Yes, <laughs> let's talk about bananas. B A N A N S. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to three percent daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. 
Okay, so bananas are like the anti-strawberry. Yeah. There is no crossbreeding going on. There is no genetic modification going on. We we should actually, why are we talking about bananas? Well, at the same time, the New Yorker had this article about strawberries. The the New York Times did this piece about how bananas get from the banana boat all the way to your local bodega. Although also the New Yorker had a great piece about bananas a few years ago. Um, And one of the really interesting things about bananas is that precisely because they're the anti-strawberry. They're in danger. Um, There's this massive sort of tail extinction risk. Every single banana you have probably eaten in your entire life, unless you've been hanging out in sort of India, a, a, near the equator, or or in India, um, and assuming that plantains don't count as bananas, um, is this thing called a Cavendish banana, and Cavendish bananas are famously really boring bananas. I mean, if you if you say that strawberries taste like cardboard, Cavendish bananas really are the cardboard of banana. I like that they have subtle. They're subtle. Yeah, they're light. They're they're light. But we sweet. know them. We love them. We're used to them. And it's one. It's one, you know, banana, and there are thousands of bananas in the world, of which Cavendish is only one, but it's the only one we ever eat. And if the Cavendish banana were to go the way of the Gromy Shell banana, which is what the world ate before Cavendish bananas came along, and the Gromy Shell banana got wiped out by a disease which attacked Gromy Shell bananas... You know, if a disease were to come along, and there is now a disease which has so, come along. So this is actually the irony, right? So the, the, you had this thing called the Gros Michel, and it was wiped out by something called Panama disease. Um, and it just rots the tree from the inside out. And so all the ban- all of the banana trees that were growing, the banana the whole world ate, kind of just went kaput. And so the Cavendish banana was like what they bred in response to say, okay, it's going to be resistant to Panama disease. And so they bred out the flavor. And they bred in the disease resistance, and also it travels well. This is another example of a piece of fruit that is, uh, you know, bred for globalization, not necessarily for flavor. Um, now it looks like because you have this like mono strain that the whole world has kind of cloned one after another, it is now vulnerable to another version of Panama disease. A there is a slightly tweaked that uh, there is a, a tweaked strain that could come after the world's banana supply, and so you're having almost like a a kind of grimly ironic repeat. But yeah, what you know, we all intuitively understand that a heterogeneous locavorian utopia of people growing a bunch of different bananas would be much more robust because if one strain wiped out one of those bananas, that you'd still have all of the other bananas to choose from. The problem is that there's no such thing as a locavorian banana you know you can't you can't grow bananas in maine but no but you could have so i think the strawberry industry though is showing us the the other approach which is you have either academic institutions or big strawberry like coming up with new strains and trying to diversify their crop base bananas it happens to be they've gone this other route where they just have commodity banana and they sell the same thing everywhere which is easy and good for business in some ways probably but especially if you're just like a massive company that doesn't want to invest a lot in r&d but it's it's not necessarily long-term sustainable. Yeah, although I would say, unfortunately, Big Banana does not have the greatest history. No, they like um, take over small countries <laughs> and they're involved in coups. And, and also for the sake of poor Ecuador, I, I do not want us to have local bananas. <laughs> so poor- Ecuador has two major like commodity, like non-oil commodity exports. One is shrimp, which tends to get killed every few years by El Nino. And the other one is bananas, which is 
basically controlled by this one guy called Gustavo Noboa, and he has his own issues. And did he become president at one point, or did he just run for president? He just ran. He just ran for president. But like, Wait, Ecuador is a natural banana republic? Is it, what you're telling Ecuador, And there are actual banana republics in the Caribbean whose main export is bananas. And where you get serious geopolitical wrangling over banana imports into the EU and whether they should um, basically give preferential trade terms to their former colonies in the Caribbean, which need preferential trade terms in order to remain competitive because otherwise they face off against Gustavo Naboa and Big Banana. It's um, it, it's kind of crazy the amount of politics that surrounds the banana, especially in the Caribbean. Wait, so is it conceivable, though, that you could ever have a shift towards a more uh, a more artisanal approach? Like, you have hundreds of breeds in India, right? Like, right. So this article mentions that, like, in India, they mock our Cavendish yes. banana. They call the hotel banana. The hotel banana. It's, that's, like, the polite way of saying, like, the banana for white people, right? Like, that's... So, like, could, like, you take some of those amazing breeds that they're apparently eating, like, in Mumbai, and, and bring those around the world to diversify the banana stock and maybe give us more more options is that something um, that's or, or could we or? just start by like eating fewer bananas and more plantains no i like bananas <laughs> I, I am very uh, pro banana i uh, see this is where the new uh, like new york native comes in like the plantain is the superior food but anyway but uh, you, it's true the bananas i mean they are an astonishing fruit because they are so good at ripening after they've been picked yeah and so what that means is that when you pick a banana, you pick it when it is rock hard and bright green. And you ship these rock hard, bright green bananas, and you don't even need to refrigerate the ships. Like you can treat them really quite badly because these things are like hammers. And you can bash them around and they can sit on ships for weeks and it's no big deal. And then finally they go into this warehouse where you artificially ripen them using ethylenes and whatnot and they can ripen in three or four days if you if you put the right gas in them at the right temperature and then bang they they hit the supermarket shelves and the street stalls and they get sold and everyone goes wow that's a perfectly ripe banana but it's all really artificial well, I mean, it's it is. It's like the it's like everything's the, artificial. It, the 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 banana is like the perfect proxy for modernity, right? <laughs> That's what we're saying here. I don't know. I'm trying to make a great hey, point. I, yeah, uh, <laughs> but bananas are also important because bananas are a loss leader in the sense like you you're not going to make money on bananas, but bananas bring people to your fruit stand or to your bodega, and then you buy your blueberries and your blackberries that cost a lot of money. Is that true? Yes. That the banana itself is just is not... a loss leader. Yes, it is. Huh? Yeah. I actually said the person who wrote this article was like last week on Leonard Lope speaking about this. And and and, and this is where you learned about people selling bananas below cost. Yes. Wow. So next time you buy you you're you're slicing banana over your breakfast cereal. Just you know wonder to yourself what would happen if this Panama variant wipes out the Cavendish. I mean that would that would be a serious like recession level event for many countries well, so I'm, near the equator. I, I actually do have a question. So is there a reason why I like in the US you have these companies that really do approach agriculture as food science and they're not just like they are trying it they are trying to make multiple breeds and kind of make it sustainable. 
is there a reason you don't necessarily have that in the major, you know, banana commodity fruit producing countries? Or, or is there any example of that? Is it just because that their products have been hardier traditionally, they've never felt compelled yeah, to do the food science? It is could that, be an accident of history. I honestly don't know. I mean, it's not that food science is, is hard to find in these countries. You know, there's a lot of extremely high tech rice out there. Okay. Um, but bananas have basically, I would say, suffered from the if it ain't broke, don't fix it problem. They've, mm-hmm. They they found this solution which worked, yeah. and then there was no incentive for them to create alternative bananas, and so they didn't. Whereas, and that could wind up, you know, like everything we know about the Irish potato famine like, could basically happen to banana producers in various different countries yeah, around a, the world. Yeah, it's a serious issue, especially if you look at like the Ecuadorian economy, because they're having a very hard time because of where oil prices are. And if you started to see bananas, I mean, that would be devastating. They're also dollarized, which hurts them a number of other ways. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was bananas and strawberries. I feel like we've we've really kind of done a good fruit salad this week. What, what else do you need other than bananas and strawberries? Oh, that's what you need. A glass of rosé. I thought you were going to say, like, cantaloupe. <laughs> like, you'll, you'll have Josh Barrow on you, like a ton of bricks, if you, if you, try, and, if you try and include mm. a honeydew melon. Honeydew melon is great. Oh, I, anyway. I thought, yeah. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> honeydew is wonderful. Hon- honeydew is, is, is an abomination to fruit. What about canary melons? How do you guys feel? I'm a big fan of those. Canary? Yeah, the big yellow... Yeah, I think so. There's <laughs> pro melon. Yeah. Dan Schrader yeah. is a is is a pro melon <laughs> it's man. Yes. Pro melonist. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Okay, so um, on which heterogeneous Locavorian note we will. Um, bring this. Well, we won't bring this. We have a numbers round coming. This yeah. to a close. We have a numbers round. I'm gonna. I'm gonna start the numbers round because I. I have a number for um, once. I'm not just making. <laughs> I'm ready. Oh wait. Okay. What's your number? Uh, my number is nine ninety five. Um. So a month. Uh. So this company called Movie Pass. Uh. Which. Let's, ah, yeah, Movie Pass. Pass. So this company called Movie Pass. It's been around for a while. Um, just lowered its subscription price to nine ninety five a month. What the service does is it lets you go to essentially as many movies in theaters as you want per month for their subscription. You can go to one movie per day at any theater that accepts their Mastercard debit cards. And um, in response to this announcement, AMC freaked out and started saying, "We're going to try and figure out ways to bar this service from our theater because they don't want the value of a movie ticket essentially being devalued massively." And it's not clear they can, though, because again, what Movie Pass essentially does is just gives people a debit card that their account is linked to, and then they pay the theater the full price. I feel like this is a system which is bound to fail if oh, it absolutely. doesn't ultimately have the support of the theaters. And if it does have the support of the theaters, then all power to them. Yeah, I, I wrote an article basically saying like this is it's really interesting because 
unlike most third party ticket sellers, MoviePass doesn't need permission, doesn't need to work out a deal ahead of time with the theater to offer this because it, it can just kind of insert itself. But then long term, its financial viability to some extent probably hinges on their willingness I, to cooperate. I have a question here because it seems like an arbitrage opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Is it nine ninety five regardless of where you're? you're going to see the movie so like if yes. you're in new york city versus you're in like kentucky yes, yes. so if it, it is 9.95 <laughs> a month and so the average movie ticket price in the country is i think it's like 830 some 860 something and so if you're in new york 9.95 is an insanely good deal because all movies take, are like 15 bucks unless you're like in deep brooklyn whereas like if you're in you know kentucky or you know somewhere lower cost uh, a, a, a cheaper city you might be paying seven eight dollars for your movie ticket so my number is 400,000, which is the number of basically Mexican-American girls who turn 15 each year. And, of course, when you're a Mexican-American girl and you turn 15, you have a quinceañero. And the average quinceañero, we are now told, costs $15,000, which, if you do the math, works out to the six billion dollar a year industry on on quinceaneros and um is it is that is so quinceaneros now bigger than bar mitzvahs so i mean what i would say is that the size of the quinceaneros industry is roughly the size of the berry industry according to the (laughs) new york (laughs) all right there we go a lot of pink tool being sold yes yes um so my number is 5.3 percent I've had some variation of this number before, I will grant you. So the IMF came out and said that China's growth rate from 2011 to 2016 would have been 5.3% instead of 7.3% if they hadn't issued as much debt as they have. And the reason this is important is both because it speaks to the amount of debt that has been issued, but it also speaks to the fact that the Chinese government right now is in a situation where they know they have to rein back all this leverage, and also the speculation in the housing market. But if they do that, they're not going to meet their growth targets, which they have to meet, so they are in a very difficult position. So I think that's it. I think I think on 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 the tough choices facing the go- Chinese government... It's just like the choice between strawberries or bananas. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick strawberries. I'm, I'm team strawberry. I, yeah. Team banana man. Wait, really? I eat, like, strawberries and cream... You have a little punnet of strawberries and cream while you're watching Wimbledon, and yeah. it's like the most English thing. I, I was going to say it's extremely, extremely it is very English. 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 Um, I'm I'm team strawberry. Well, I, I'm yeah. It's but, like you know, but no, almost everybody eats more bananas. Yeah, than but nobody gets joy out of a banana. No one, no one is like, oh god, yeah, this is exactly this is summer. I'm eating a banana. I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look at your local orangutan. They get serious. <laughs> joy out of eating bananas i don't know where this is going (laughs) on that note we are just gonna we're just gonna bring this wrap this one up thank you so much for listening to slate money thank you to dan schrader for trying to talk about melons you know i mean that that next week melons um Email us at slatemoney at slate.com. Listen to Represent, which is hosted by Aisha Harris and posts on Friday mornings. You can um, you can find it at slate.com.represent and it is produced by Slate Money's former producer, Verilyn Williams. And it is basically this place where you get to talk about movies and TV and online shows, all created by and or about women. 
people of color and other like marginalized communities. It's fun. It's interesting. So check that one out at slate.com slash represent. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. It's bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S.